Welcome to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns. Real people, real voices, real lives. Discussing mental health, addiction and disability in the community. Your weekly window to the real world. Welcome to Take It From Us. Take it from us. Welcome into the program this week. I hope you've been looking after yourselves. I hope you're going well. Uh, good news from my end. Uh, I'm out and about. I did my seven days isolation at home with the family and we're all good to go. So the little girl was packed off to school, little boys in daycare. Happy days. We're all good. I uh, just wanted to thank people as well for, for all the support that our family received last week. That, that was the one nice thing about being at home, you know, being stuck at home was the support. And, and there was a silver lining to that. So I think just to thank everybody for, for reaching out and, and for supporting not just myself and my family, but also others in the community. And I've been able to share some stories about this with a number of people now over the last few weeks. And everyone says the same thing that whilst it can be tough to be stuck at home and you're a little uncertain about what's going on, just the amount of community support, people offering to buy you groceries, drop stuff off, pick up prescriptions from the doctor. Uh, it's, it's really, really heartening to think that we've got this little community here where people are looking after each other. So it was greatly appreciated. I was supposed to be going for a big walk this weekend on the Tongariro crossing, decided to can that. I don't know if that's the right thing to do, to be putting the body uh, through 20 k's of rugged terrain so soon after uh, something like COVID-19. So for me... I've got a smile on my face. It's good to be back working and talking to you, but I'll be just taking it very, very easy this week. Uh, please share your stories as well with us on the Facebook page. Thanks for those people that have messaged uh, during the week. If you'd like to leave a comment, we'll get to those too. Uh, jump on board our Facebook page. Take it from us. Let's have a look at our program for today. Uh, a little bit later, we'll hear from Amanda Hill, who was a partner at Sonia Cooper Law. We'll hear from her. Uh, we'll also get to some budgeting money matters as well, because I know that the price of everything is just going through the roof. Every day we're hearing about inflation. We're hearing about petrol prices, mortgage rates, Food prices are just ridiculously high for a country like New Zealand. We need some help. I know I do. Um, we need to listen to someone who can just make us maybe a little wiser about what we're doing with our money and maybe just help to relieve some of that stress and pressure and anxiety of the financial problems that a lot of us find ourselves in at the moment. So uh, very much looking forward to to talking some, some budgeting stuff a little bit later this morning with Ange Smart. She will join us from moneytalks.co.nz. Last week, you may recall, we had Sean McNeil uh, from the Health Quality and Safety Commission on the program. Um, one of the programs that he is involved in is called Zero Seclusion. And the goal there is to have no New Zealanders put into isolation or solitary confinement in state care and he was able to put forward a very compelling case for that when we spoke with him. Uh, since that time uh, Denise Kelto has reached out to us here at Take It From Us. Denise lives in the northern region uh, and has contributed to the Royal Commission of Inquiry into historical abuse in state care and has experienced both abuse and neglect herself under the Mental Health Act. Uh, last year she was in and out of hospital and during her last day she tells us she was forcibly restrained and secluded and wants to share more details of that and also what it was that she was able to give to the Royal Commission of Inquiry. Uh, Denise, thank you so much for joining us on Take It From Us. We do appreciate your time. Why is it important that you share your story with us? I guess it's important because 
I've been taking part in the Royal Commission of Inquiry into historical abuse in state care. And, I mean, I've had a history when I was in my teens and 20s where I was restrained and secluded a lot, actually, probably, probably, probably for me, probably a hundred, more than a hundred times, maybe, um, even up to 200 times in that, in a couple of periods of time in my life. And actually ever imagine I'd ever be in a situation where I would be restrained and secluded again. And it's happened. I've been very unwell over the last year or so. And was ended up in um, Whangarei Hospital in Tumanako, the inpatient unit. And I was restrained and secluded, much to my horror. And how it happened was pretty horrendous, which I'll share as I go through. But it's so important to me because I don't want people to, when they listen to the stuff in the Royal Commission, I don't want people to think that this is still happening, this is only happening in the past. Because they've got the zero seclusion policy, but in the time that I was in Tumanako, I saw a lot of people being secluded and I was restrained and secluded and I've, and other people have spoken to me. This is still happening and there's nothing good about it. And people need to know because I really do not believe that people know what the reality of our inpatient wards are in regard to what's happening. What's the difference between the reality that you're seeing and that you're knowledgeable of and what we are led to believe is happening? Well, I think that, uh, I think that there's definitely a belief that a lot of these types of practices were in the past and that we've moved on and that they've changed. And I think that there's a little bit of um, corruption happening, which I've, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist or really giving people the benefit of the doubt. But I actually think that there's a little bit of um, corrupt practice happening here that people need to know about. And I can see and hear because I'm, I have a connection through because of my Facebook group. There's a lot of people that talk to me privately and when I actually posted my experience on social media, um, I've had so many people connect and say, I'm so pleased that you're talking about this because that happened to me. That's happened to me. And, um, and I don't think people realize that it's still happening as often as it is. Do you believe the authorities therefore are either bending the truth or not giving us the truth about what's happening? I think they're bending the truth. And um, so there's a little bit of whitewashing going on. I don't know how widespread. I can only speak about my own personal experience, which there was, to me, it's definitely whitewashing. And, and, and actually, I think that it's actually not right what's happening. So, Tell us about the last 12 months for you and how you came to be restrained and then your experience once again with being secluded. So um, the... The last 12 months, like I had not been coping in the community for quite a long time. So I'm autistic and have bipolar and I have um, PTSD. And that was really re-triggered by, in a way, like I was really keen to do the Royal Commission process. But I made a point because I wanted to be a witness to the stories that some the people that have told told these stories, like I was particularly interested in the Lake Alice people's stories. And... I want, because they're really hard stories to hear, 
I wanted to be a witness. I wanted to sit there and listen. And it was actually quite traumatic listening to some of the things that have happened to people. And it also, because it made me think about my own story and my own situation and some of the things that have happened to me in the past. Um, so that contributed to me actually tipping over a little bit, you know, into getting um, pretty unwell. But really, because I wasn't coping in the community because of my autism, uh, that actually I started getting mentally unwell because I, I was not taking my meds properly and stuff. And then on top of it, I was having to deal with what was coming up for me. And um, But the thing that really took me over the edge was how mental health services reacted to it. Because I try, I try often not to get mental health services involved because of my previous experience. So for me to actually ask for help, it's usually that I'm really in a place that actually I know that I need help. But in, I've been um, in and out of mental health services. My first admission to a hospital was when I was 16, um, and I'm 56 now, so 40 years ago. And I've had, um, I've been in a whole range of services over my life. I've been an inpatient, I've been, I've been in public services and I've been at Ashburn. I've been, I've had peer support services. I've had community, I've had every kind of service you could possibly have, you know, respite. So I have this massive knowledge, but I also used my early experience. I ended up going and working in mental health, so I've actually been involved in the consumer movement for 25 years, and I don't, I've done auditing, I was a lecturer at Otago Polytech, so I was teaching mental health nursing students, occupation, I've been involved, I've worked for the Human Rights Commission, so I have a huge amount of knowledge that I've gained over the years, so I've taken my early experiences and actually used them to uh, help others and to do what I can in terms of trying to influence change over the years, you know. I've I've done a lot and at, at times. So I'm not just somebody that's had an experience and thought, oh, I'll share my experience. I've, I've reflected on it. I've utilised it to help other people and stuff. So, um, so it's really my profession, even though I'm not working, now, um, it was a real surprise to me to become so unwell again. I, I didn't really anticipate that I would become so unwell and that I would need to be back in hospital. And I initially went back into hospital about five years ago, and it was five or six years ago I went into Whangarei Hospital, traumatised by what I saw, and I, I went into a real massive grief because it was like, I've been working trying to change the system for so long and what I saw then like made me just realise that actually all the things that we've worked for and the things that I thought were happening and the changes that I thought were happening on the ground floor in the hospital, I saw stuff that I did, that I just thought we'd gone past and it shocked me. It made me feel like I'd wasted 25 years of my life. <laughs> and it made me, it actually made me deeply, deeply sad. I became grief stricken really. Mm. And it was actually seeing what was happening to the young people. I just thought that we had done all that work and that we were protecting other people from having to go through some of the stuff I went through. And, and it was hard. It was hard to see that mm. what was happening. Mm. And I actually spent about, um, I actually went into, um, I started withdrawing after my experience 
those experiences because I actually ended up in a situation, uh, a really difficult situation where I ended up assaulting a staff member because I was just pushed so far beyond my ability to cope. And so I ended up with criminal charges because of that. And I was so traumatised that I just mentally collapsed. And then what happened was I started withdrawing from everybody and I spent about three years where I was completely isolated and withdrawing and I became very depressed and stuff. And so by the beginning of last year, I actually made a decision to end my life. And... um because I'd had about three years at that stage where I was completely withdrawn and um, and I couldn't really get the help that I needed or the support in the community that I needed. And I was just um, heartbroken over so much stuff, really. And I, to be honest, I, I knew that I could continue to live. I just made the decision because I was 56 and because of my life experience because of my experience in mental health services, I haven't ended up having, I, I don't have a partner, I don't have children, I don't have grandchildren. I've become extremely physically unwell and the medications and stuff that I've had, because I've put on a medication initially when I was 11 years old and my body is, my body is in a very bad state now. And so I was having a lot of physical health problems, which I also wasn't managing and I wasn't getting support to manage. So um, I made the decision that I could keep fighting, but I didn't want to. And um, so when I actually made an attempt in my life, which failed, um, I I was back in touch with mental health services. And um, that was in February last year. And to be honest, the last year has probably, I've had some pretty horrific stuff happen to me in mental health services over the years, but I can hand on my heart tell you that what I've experienced in the last year is some of the worst stuff that I've ever experienced. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, you've contributed also to the Royal Commission of Inquiry into Historical Abuse in State Care, and, you, and you, you, I know that you plan to, to give more evidence too. Did you feel listened to? By the Royal Commission? Yes. I felt very, that's probably the first time in my life I've really felt listened to. I felt really validated and um, in a way it's the first time that I've really realised, because I've had stuff happen to me that mostly people just don't want to know about or talk about and you just sit with it and Sometimes, you, you know, this is you come across other people with lived experience and you know that they understand, but really nobody else does. And um, I, I felt that this was the first time anybody actually really listened to my story. And even some of the things that I've just accepted have been, oh, you know, that have just happened to me. But when I, you know, when you've got a, a judge or, you know, listening, because the person who came to talk to me was a judge. She's one of the people that on the commission panel. And she, uh, was, I could see the shock on her face about some of the things that I was describing. And, um, and even her sitting there saying, that's illegal. I mean, how could they do that? You know, and it's like, 
suddenly that's, that's actually the first time in my whole life that anybody's actually said what's happened to you was really wrong. And, um, yeah, it was, and I actually really want to tell them more. I really want them to know some more stuff and to, I, I'm trying really hard to try and, um, be one of the people that present to, to, um, the Royal Commission, to the, to actual commission because I just want that experience of, um, having people hear what I have to say and it being recorded and documented in New Zealand, uh, legal history, mm. you know, mm. um, yeah. And so you set up a Facebook page about seven years ago. You've got now more than a thousand followers. What are the, what, what are people on there telling you? Well, I get a lot of private messages from people when I put stuff up. The interesting thing about that page is, I mean, I put, I started that page because I felt like consumers or if I ordered at grassroots level just really weren't getting the information. And it particularly when they started doing the suicide prevention things, when they changed, so they started talking about suicide. Uh, I am a person who actively seeks out information. And when I realized that, in the whole of the Northland, when they were doing the conversations about that, there was me and one other consumer, and that person worked in the DHB, and yet there was not one other person in Northland. And at that stage, there was a real problem with the number of suicides in the Northland area. And I thought, I listened to what was happening, and there was, it was like, we haven't even got people that are, in, you know, that this is affecting. They're not even here participating in all this policy and strategic planning that you're doing around suicide prevention. And it's like, I made the decision then and there that I was going to start an information sharing page to get information down to grassroots. And, and I think it's really actually, um, played a small part in opening up the dialogue, um, you know, even up to Ministry of Health and, and the government level that people are starting, because I started to be a bit of a broken record. I'd, every time some in these private groups, the information was um, shared, and but you couldn't share it publicly, I started just being a broken record and nagging people and saying, I think, you know, if I order need to know this, can I share this on my public page? And I'd get doing this over and over. And on the very first... Um, Ministry of Health um, newsletter, they put one out every week now, the first thing they said was, we keep getting asked for this information, so we've decided to put out a newsletter. And and there's other places, like there's a lot of the other government organisations that are putting out weekly newsletters, and I publish them all on my page, so people can just go to one place, mm. and they can get a whole lot of information about what's going on, they can just flick through and think, oh, that's, I don't need to know that, I don't need to know that, but... Oh, that's good, you know, so they don't have to spend their whole day searching out mental health um, information. It's all in one place, you know. Mm. What do you think the future holds for you, Denise? For me personally, mm. to be honest, to be honest, um, I'm in a position at the moment where I'm still pretty unwell and uh, I'm, I, I actually feel like I have, I'm not holding a lot of hope for my future. I don't know what's going to happen for me. And um, I feel quite proud of myself in that I'm sitting with the discomfort of that. Mm. And for a long time I uh, was actively wanting to end my life. And now, especially because of all the stuff that's happened, it feels like I've got a lot of information that I need to share 
Mm. And it's almost given me another purpose. But I'm also sitting, I've read a lot of stuff to people that talk about people that are brave, that when you want, when you really don't want to be living anymore, mm. how do you stay alive? Well, I'm doing it. It's very uncomfortable. Mm. I do, I am actually on a waiting list to go to Ashburn Clinic. And so I feel like I've been containing and holding myself because I've been so mistrustful of the DHB that, I mean, I, can, I can't even walk into the offices or anything more without going into a massive trauma response. I can't deal with them or have anything to do with them. So I've been holding on so that I can go to Ashburn because I trust them there. And really I want to talk about what's happened and I want to feel safe again and I don't. So at the moment, I'm not worrying about my future. I'm just sitting with the discomfort and, um, of, of not knowing what's going to happen. But I feel very proud that I'm not dead. Yeah, we're very glad that you called in to the program, Denise, and, and thanks for very much for sharing your story with us. Uh, by the way, you can get in touch with Denise on Facebook. Uh, that Facebook group that she started up a number of years ago, as we said, has more than a 1,000 people as part of that active community, uh, NZ Mental Health Consumer slash Fi Order Information Sharing. Fi Order, W-H-A-I-O-R-A. Jump on the Facebook page. As I said, more than a 1,000 people on there contributing to um, to Denise and sharing stories and talking about lived experience. Very important that people can reach out if they, if they need to. So Denise is doing a really good job and, and we just heard her story and we do thank her for joining us on Take It From Us this morning. Uh, more now about the Royal Commission inquiry itself. And we're joined by Amanda Hill, who is a partner at Sonia Cooper Law. She is representing abuse survivors, giving evidence at the hearings underway. Amanda, thanks so much for your time today. What are the objectives of the inquiry? So the inquiry has really broad terms of reference, and they include establishing the nature and scope of abuse in care, and those terms, abuse and care, are both cast really broadly. Um, and abuse covers things like neglect, um, uh, physical, sexual, psychological abuse, those sorts of things, and cultural abuse as well, um, and spiritual abuse because the inquiry is also looking at faith-based institutions, so churches, faith-based organisations and so on. And care is quite broad as well. So looking at things like residential schools, state schools, um, social welfare institutions, psychiatric hospitals, churches where there's pastoral relationships and, and so on. So that's the first thing is looking at what factually did happen. And then the second part of that is looking at what, what caused this, what systemic or cultural issues caused that to happen and were there things that enabled that abuse to happen or to continue? And then related to that is what was the response from state and faith-based institutions to abuse, both at the time it was happening and later when survivors came to seek acknowledgement and apology for the things that happened. So there's those three stages um, and the time frame of the Royal Commission 
runs from events that happened between 1950 and 1999, um, with a discretion to look at things that happened later than that. And then the other part of the Royal Commission is to make recommendations, and that is um, twofold. That is about what can we do to care for people better now, whether that's children in care or in the mental health context, um, and what can we do to improve our redress processes. And redress is a sort of a capsule term for claims um, and seeking acknowledgement and apology and healing from the things that have happened. So the inquiry is incredibly broad and it's got a huge task, um, but that is, is largely the objective is to make a, a public finding out what has happened, why it happened, and also to look forward, how do we make it better, how do we stop it happening again. Amanda, how many survivors are we talking about here in total? It's really hard to tell. Um, one of the earlier interim reports of the Royal Commission did its best to try and look at how many people are affected. And I think it was something along the lines of there were about, about I think about 650,000 people had come into the terms of reference of care at some point. And there was an estimate that I think around 200 to 250,000 people might have suffered some adverse events or abuse of some kind. That's based on the information available and some of that information is patchy because the state and faith-based institutions did not keep good data. Okay, We also don't have great data around things like ethnicity, disability, um, whether people identified as being part of the rainbow community, those sorts of things. So the data, the historic data is patchy. That gives you a sense of the size of the potential pool of people, though. In terms of people who have come to the Royal Commission, um, I know that um, there are different ways you can engage with the Royal Commission. So you can register with the Royal Commission and have a private session um, where you meet privately with one of the commissioners to give your account of what happened to you. Um, and there's been, I think, around a 1,000 or more of those. Um, that The details of this are on the Abuse and Care website, which is actually a really great website for this information. And then there's the public hearings, um, which is the most visible part of, of the inquiry. And there's been a couple of those, well, more than a couple actually, since um, the inquiry was established. So there was what was called a contextual hearing, which looked at broad themes, um, sort of an introduction to what the inquiry was doing. Uh, there's been hearings around redress, and I'll come on to the redress report in a second. Um, there's been hearings around social welfare institutions. Um, Maryland's, which was a school for um, boys with intellectual disabilities, that was the most recent one. Lake Alice, which is a institution a lot of people are really familiar with, with really horrific things happening there. There's been hearings. Um, today is the last day of the Māori investigation, which is currently happening at um, Orake Marae at Bastion Point. And there was the Pacific Peoples hearing last year held at the Whalasamo, um in Mangere. And I've probably missed a couple in there, but 
you can see the sort of the number of hearings that have happened and there's ones coming up as well. Um, and that's sort of like the public face of the inquiry where people hear accounts and put a human face on them because you can write stories about this stuff a lot, but until you see someone telling their story, for some people it doesn't really sink in. So there's been those inquiries, but they're sort of evidentially they're the tip of the iceberg because underneath that there's hundreds of written witness statements which we're helping to prepare and the commission is preparing as well, um, which forms an evidential um, basis for the Royal Commission's factual findings about what happened. So in terms of numbers, that might give you a, sort of an idea of how people are engaging at the moment. You've spoken to a number of survivors who have obviously been giving some evidence. Has it been a cathartic experience for them? A lot of them it has been. Um, obviously, doing a written statement is different to presenting oral evidence. Um, and so people who have provided written statements have found it um, really interesting experience because they ask for their opinion and sometimes this hasn't happened a lot for our clients. They're asked for what what would make it better? What would have been better for you? What was missing in your your experience? And that's been a really thought-provoking experience for our clients and for survivors generally. Um, Giving oral evidence at the hearing um, has been, I mean, people have done that different. Some people have found it really cathartic. Other people have really struggled because it is really hard to do, even with all the well-being support available through the Royal Commission. It's a hard thing to do. And some people um, who have been whanau or family members on behalf of people who have not been able to give evidence have also taken part. Um, I read an affidavit from someone who passed away before the hearing, for example. And I know that family members of people who have been unable to give Evidence for a range of reasons have also given evidence on behalf of their family members, which has been um, really valuable because it can be sometimes hard to hear from those people. So that's that's been an added dimension as well. And what will redress look like and how will the recommendations from this inquiry likely shape the future in New Zealand? Yeah. Um, bear in mind the Royal Commission can only make recommendations but in, in December last year, the Royal Commission issued an interim report focused on redress issues because there is urgency to this. We have around 1,600 open files. It's probably the same number sitting with MSD that are representing themselves. There are literally hundreds of people seeking acknowledgement and the processes are broken. So the redress report was pretty damning around every redress process that we have running and that is the Ministry of Social Development, the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Health, Orangatamariki. So all of these parts of government, they're all running their own processes uh, badly and of course the faith-based institutions, the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the Salvation Army are the three big ones that the Commission looked at. Uh, Again, criticism of each of those processes. And so the recommendation um, that was made by the Royal Commission was to abolish those processes and introduce a new independent scheme 
which would provide what's been called Puratumu Torofanui. Now, Puratumu Torofanui is a Māori phrase referring to sort of holistic healing. Um, and the proposal is that Puratumu Torofanui, available to everyone despite the use of te ao Māori principles and, and phrases, it would be open to everyone who has had um, an abusive experience in care and in faith-based institutions as well. And it would be independent of the government organisations and the faith-based institutions. It would be uh, a one-stop shop. You wouldn't have to go to different parts of the government to sort different parts of your experiences. It would offer higher payments. It would offer a suite of healing services, lots of support, help to understand your life. Like lots of people don't understand why decisions were made. Um, so understanding your records, understanding your history, reconnecting you with your whakapapa, reconnecting you with your iwi, your language, your religion. Um, so we're really enthusiastic around the proposal, uh, but it is now down to the politicians because while the government has said it will set up a process based on the Royal Commission's report, um, we don't know what that looks like yet. I understand Cabinet are meeting in April and that um, we'll have more information about the government response then. My concern is that the Royal Commission's recommendations are what I call the Rolls-Royce model and that the government willingness and funding might be more at the Mazda, um, even the Lada scheme of things. So what we're shifting into now is talking to people and the politicians about the potential for Puratumu Torofanui because what we know is that a lot of trauma is intergenerational, particularly for Māori, but also a lot of families. If your parents have suffered trauma in, in, in the psychiatric hospitals and care, sometimes in both, then you, you, your ability to parent is affected and so your children take on some of that trauma, right? And the possibilities of having a proper healing process for those families is huge. Like in terms of our ability to help people heal, help people get better support, um, help families stay together um, to get a better understanding of people's mental well-being, like separating out trauma from actual mental illness or understanding how they interact. Head injuries, like the huge number of head injuries that people have been in social welfare care and the huge impact of brain injuries and all of that. So there's lots to do in that space and so what we are doing is saying to the politicians, this is something you need to invest in because the community benefit is immense. The ability to get people back into work, the ability to help people parent better and just be better better versions of themselves. You know, there's huge potential there. So we're really, as you can tell, I'm really enthusiastic about this. Um, but we have some way to go. The government has said that any scheme would come in late 2023, early 2024, but we're just sort of, we don't know enough about what that'll look like. Um, 
The other thing I probably should touch on in terms of the Royal Commission's recommendations are that it made a suite of recommendations about changing some parts of our legislation, and that would be repealing the Limitation Act, um, which has been a barrier to taking court proceedings for lots of people. It was a barrier to their psychiatric claims that we worked on through the early 2000s um, because it prevents people taking claims after a certain amount of time. Um, it's a bit of a king hit on claims. No matter how much you can factually prove the ha- things that happen to you, the Limitation Act it stops those claims in your tracks, basically. So the Royal Commission has said, look, repeal that. And other countries have done that too, in Scotland and, and parts of Australia. They've repealed those. And the Royal Commission said, look, create an exception in the ACC law for victims of sexual abuse because ACC is also a barrier to seeking compensation. The idea behind ACC, as we all know, is supposed to replace the ability to go to court. and But it doesn't. Um, if you are a victim of sexual abuse, you might be entitled to some counselling or you might be assessed for an independence allowance, but it in no way replaces the sorts of settlements we're seeing overseas, the financial compensation that we see overseas in different jurisdictions that don't have ACC. So those legislative changes could fundamentally change the way people seek redress from organisations as well. That is Amanda Hill from Sonia Cooper Law talking with us here on Take It From Us. This is Take It From Us. Real stories, real life, as told by you.
take it from us, that is CeeLo Green, everybody loves you, babe. I'll tell you what people aren't in love with at the moment is the price of everything. Remember those petrol prices from a couple of weeks ago? Um, inflation, everywhere you look, it's just inflation, inflation, inflation. Food prices, interest rates, uh, it's enough to make people's heads swim at this point of time. And it's fair to say that out there in our community, there are a number of people doing it really, really tough at the moment, um, given that everything seems to be going up in price. So how do we make this work for ourselves? How can we relieve some of the stress and some of the anxiety and some of the worry? And maybe we'll pick up a tip or two as to how better we can work with the money that we do have. Uh, Joining us now on Take It From Us is Ange Smart. She is the team lead at moneytalks.co.nz. Ange, thank you so much for joining us. Fair to say that you're working with a number of people under real financial pressure at the moment? Yeah, we've definitely seen a massive influx compared to sort of middle of last year when that first lockdown in Auckland and across the country happened in, what was it, August? Basically, it's just never gotten better since then. It's Mm. just continued. Well, what's the number one driver for a lot of the, the worry and stress and anguish that a lot of us are feeling at the moment? The number one is just there's just not enough money to go around. There's just too many competing expenses mm. and uh, conversations around, you know, what was a manageable bill or a manageable expense, uh, you know, only six months ago is now no longer. And it's not like people are getting wage rises of six or seven percent in line with inflation. So, uh, yeah, there's some real stresses on, on family and, and just individual budgets at the moment. Mm. Into the financial year too, does does that factor in for the average person on the street or are we really talking about businesses there? Uh, that would be mainly for businesses. What will be interesting is to see whether people have been taxed correctly and I really hope mm. that there aren't any conversations about surprise um, tax bills at the end of the financial year because, you know, that all gets calculated um, just in the background of IRD's website. And so hopefully everybody's being taxed correctly if you're on PAYE. Otherwise, you could end up with a tax bill. But my suggestion there would be to go onto the IRD website and you log in under My IR. And if you haven't got a login, go and get one. It is the most simplest process to do. And it gives you all your information as to what you do or don't owe the IRD because, mate, that's the last thing anyone needs is a tax bill. Um, But if that is you, have a chat to IRD. Talk to them. Don't wait until they come chasing you because you don't need to pay interest or penalties. And you mentioned there's not enough money to go around. I mean, where do we start? Food, <laughs> petrol, mortgages, uh, interest rates, wanting to save for a holiday because a lot of us probably need one and we're not sure if we've got enough or can justify having a holiday. If What are people sacrifice? What are the people that you work with having to sacrifice at the moment to just keep their heads above water? Uh, the worst part is usually it's food and how many parents go without mm-hmm. food in their tummies because they want to make sure that the kids are fed. You know, um, things like power bills or the phone bill or the rent or the mortgage or insurance, those are kind of fixed expenses every single week, every single mm-hmm. month. So it's always food that ends up getting uh, pushed down the list and whatever is left is then what is left to actually go to the grocery store. Um, So in those kind of conversations, I'd really look and encourage, get on that WINS website and make sure that there aren't any other entitlements that you are, um, you know, that are available to you, you know, whether you've got 
if you've got a kid with a disability, um, whether it be a neurological or a physical, you've got entitlements under the child disability allowance. And, um, you know, that might be something that you've never thought about, but it's not even income tested. So there could be lots of other options out there, you know, that you could actually be entitled to from an income perspective, um, but from the expense perspective, mm-hmm. budget, ring around, get different quotes, especially for insurances, um, making sure that you're still covered. But man, everyone mm-hmm. is hurting um, and that's, that's pretty much the the end of it at the moment is that well, it's not escaping anyone. Yeah, we're all in this together, aren't we? We, we well, yeah. really are. And there is something about that too. Sure. Is that we can look at our neighbour and go, mm. man, this sucks. Man, this is hurting. Yeah, you're hurting too. You're, you know, and mm. it's a little bit of a all in, in pain together. Which Well, the empathy goes a long way. It does. It absolutely does because, you know, are you more likely to then go and help your neighbour? Are you more likely to go, oh, hey, actually, I got given this extra bag of meat or extra bag of fruit. Can I go and give this to you? Can I, you know, encourage that kind of behaviour as well? I'm glad you mentioned the word budget. Where do do people go wrong when they're budgeting? Um, We we like to think we're a lot better at saving and not spending as much as what um, (laughs) we actually do. Oh, no, I'm sure I only spend $10 a week, um, you know, at the local dairy. Uh, And then you realise it's $20 a week. And and you kind of extrapolate that out across the board. And we really, really suck at actually estimating what it is that we spend. Uh, So that's probably the best thing is actually go back the last four weeks of your your bank statements and go and categorise it. Go and have a good look at it and actually see what you do spend. Not what you think you spend. Mm. Of what you actually do spend. And so four weeks, is that because that's a big enough sample size to give us yeah. kind of like a rolling average as to how our spending behaviour is going? Yeah, yeah, and it's in line, you know, because you pay your power bill once a month kind of thing, you know, like those kind of mm. monthly bills and it kind of encapsulates the whole thing um, and actually see what is coming in from an income perspective, what's actually going out from an expense perspective and then have a look and see, you know, do you have that gap? Do you have that nice, beautiful disposable income gap? So that's the money in between what you're getting in and what's going out. That's what you're left with. Um, and if that is a negative, not a positive, then it's either earn more income or reduce your expenses. You got me thinking now, Ange. If I was to go back and look at my last month's worth of spending, <laughs> X number of dollars at the supermarket, then you throw on the odd takeaway, you throw on going to the fruit shop or the butchery, all of those separate mm-hmm. spends, yep. and that's just food related. And, oh, and, and you know what? I'd say I've food. Bet this, I've bet you I've spent more than I thought. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know what? And I'd be one of the first to encourage online grocery shopping. Once a week, do it in line with your payday. You can actually, like with Pack and Save, you can actually go, already go ahead a week in advance, create your shopping bill, and they don't even take the money out until the day that you go to pick up your grocery. So if you know you get paid on a Wednesday, on Monday, already go in, set up a time slot for the Thursday so that your, your groceries are already set, sorted, and done for the whole week. You know the money's in the account. You're good and sorted. Pack and Save don't take it out until that day. And therefore, you are watching what is going inside that shopping basket. Because, mate, if you take kids with you, (laughs) you're going to end up buying stuff that you don't need. But you're far less likely to get to the, um, you know, get to the till and be like, oh, man, I've spent 50 bucks too much that I can't, I can't 
and you, you're too embarrassed to go and put something back. Mm. But pay that five bucks for the delivery fee or the whatever fee because it will save you in the long run. That's a tremendous piece of advice. For, for those of us listening whose heads are swimming yeah. in, in fear and anxiety and worry and we just don't know where to start and making a start seems like hard work, what yeah. would be your best piece of advice? Start with one small thing. Start with one bill that you think is a manageable thing. Um, so whether, you know, I, I wonder on those days when you're like, oh, I've got that bill or it's coming in the mail or it's gone into um, into my email box and it's just too overwhelming to open. It's too big to pick up. Uh, the conversation is just open one of those. Open up one envelope mm. and then go and have a chat to someone. Because that's as Kiwis, we are really bad about talking about money. We are so petrified of what it means. We've been taught that it's a shameful thing to, to ask for help. Mm. Um, and, you know, we, we don't even talk about what we get paid. We certainly don't talk about, you know, what our mortgage is. We don't, because there's just layers of complexity there. Uh, so, you know, one of the best things you can do is that if it is feeling too big, you can reach out to Money Talks and what we can do is put you um, in contact with a financial mentor and you don't have to go to an office if right now outside's feeling a bit, bit scary and a bit overwhelming. You've actually got the ability to um, catch up with a financial mentor who will look at your entire situation, reorganise any debts that you've got, renegotiate them, push back on them, make sure that they were even responsibly mm. given and they can do it all by phone. You don't even have to go anywhere for it. Such valuable advice, Ange. Thanks so much for joining us on Take It From Us. I've made a mental note to cross off three kids' food items on the shopping list <laughs> when I get home later today. What do you think? <laughs> Sounds good, but just don't forget to treat yourself. Still got to treat yourself. That is Ange Smart from moneytalks.co.nz talking with us on Take It From Us. Some good advice in there, some really good advice and rather timely, you'd have to think. Karen, uh, this time of the week, of course, it's time for Sheldon's shout-out. Who we got? Well, um, today, Ken, just been reflecting on what we've heard in today's show, and I just wanted to give the Sheldon shout-out for this week to the many, many people who are giving testimony and sharing their stories of abuse at the Commission of Inquiry. I think their bravery and honesty deserves our attention and our respect, and I thank them for that, and I hope that there's some meaningful change come out of this inquiry for everybody involved. That's the Sheldon shout-out for today. You're well said, Karen. Thanks for that. Yeah, the bravery, the courage, the honesty, the integrity that these people are showing uh, is certainly inspiring and, and we wish everybody well and, and again thanks for those people uh, that have come forward uh, thanks to Denise, uh, thanks to Amanda as well for sharing their stories and their experience with us on our program today
That song is Next to You by Emily Sanday. Take it from us. That is our program for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks very much for participating. Remember to jump on board our Facebook page to leave us some comments, story ideas, anything that you would like to talk about, please do. Facebook.com, take it from us. Thanks to everybody who's participated in the program today and, of course, to Karen Murphy for producing Take It From Us. Let's look after ourselves, let's look after each other, and we look forward to your company again next week. You've been listening to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns, produced by Karen Murphy, executive producer Andrew Dewhurst, made with the real stories and voices from our community. And for that, we thank you. For more information on anything you've heard on today's show or for direction on where to seek further advice or assistance, visit our Facebook page, Take It From Us.
the broken jaw. Step outside, but not to brawl in. On the sweet way, call the fall, I'll make it to the moon, it'll have to crawl in. I don't care if you're in the 